0: and welcome to another episode of subliminally correct. Taylor, what do we have up for
1: today? So today we're going to be exploring one candidate for president who's been making a lot of waves in the media and was at one time the most searched for candidate on Google. We're going to be talking about Marianne Williamson and she has categorized herself as a progressive liberal democrat and she's really best known for her self-help books and their teachings. So we're going to be listening to a rally that she did in San Francisco where she preaches the value of many of her ideas. And what you'll want to pay attention to in these clips is how she uses language, especially her use of abstraction and how she ties the ideas together that she's talking about. And this might explain why some people are really attracted to her message where, while others think she is absolutely crazy so let's take a listen to this first part of her speech here and we'll let you decide
2: thank you so much i'm marianne williamson you probably know that. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. i'm running i'm running for the democratic nomination for the candidacy for the president of the united states you probably already know it. I'm saying some things that are a little bit different, a little bit differently. You probably know all that as well. (laughs) Although in other ways, I'm saying things that other Democratic candidates are saying. There are ways in which there are unified chorus of uh, certain uh, certain messaging, uh, which is extremely important because we all know what the bottom line is. We must defeat Donald Trump at the polls in 2020. (laughs) I have strong ideas, however, about number one, what I don't think will defeat him. And number two, about a larger mission that we have. Because if all we do is defeat him, but don't really put forth a transformational vision which accomplishes a kind of transformation, then the same forces that he represents will be back in 22 and back in 24. Uh, We need to do more than just not fall over the cliff here. We need to get out of the vicinity of the cliff entirely. And we have been too close to the vicinity of the cliff for a very long time now. A lot of these problems, Donald Trump did not create them so much as the... the, the created Donald Trump. And in that sense, I'm not just prosecuting a case against Donald Trump. I'm prosecuting a case against the system that produced him. (laughs) A same old, same old, even a better version of same old, same old system that produced him, number one, will not defeat him, I don't believe. But even like I said, if it defeats him, it will not cast those forces from our midst. And that is a deeper job that we have on our hands. And that is why I am Uh, articulating a conversation that I believe, and that we all can recognize, goes deeper than the conversation that is promulgated by the conventional political establishment. The conventional political establishment in this country is too narrow a container for the energies that which must emerge at this time. These energies are not just American, they represent a global impulse towards a, an evolutionary alternative to the direction that the human race is taking at this time.
0: So here we see Marianne Williamson coming out the gate here with, you know, some really metaphorical language. Um, so she uses, a, there's a couple of things that you, you'll you notice. First is that she tends to relate things to things that exist in the real world. So when she's talking about the direction our country is headed in, she talks about, you know, not falling off the cliff here. And in fact, we need to get out of the vicinity of that cliff entirely. Um, when she is using these uh, these languages when she's talking, she says things like, "Well, you probably already know that." Um, and then she says, "Oh, but you already knew that as well. Oh, but you also probably knew that too. So she does all of these things you know the, uh, she starts off with that that pacing and leading that that uh, um, saying something that you already know, and then pointing out that you already know that and then saying something that, well, maybe you might not know, or maybe something else that leads from that thing that you already knew, and then says, oh, well, you already know that already. Now she's leading you into telling you about brand new things that, you know, she thinks that you may already be aware of, or if you're not, well, that must be true as well, because she just told me a bunch of things that I already knew. So she does, you know, little verbal techniques like that, and she interweaves it throughout her entire speech here. So you're going to hear a lot of metaphor, and a lot of pacing and leading.
1: Yeah, and she's going to be using this style of building up an argument based on premises that probably if you question those premises, you might think about them a little bit and say, okay, well, that's maybe half true, but it's not completely true. But then she'll build it up very quickly to a conclusion based on the premises that she just said. And so she's going to be using language in a way where she stacks her premises on top of each other. And in doing so, she then leads the person to an idea. Now, what I thought was really interesting in this is that she is using the same talking point that Biden has been using about the bottom line is defeating Donald Trump. And, you know, Biden is doing this because he's saying, well, this is why you should elect me, because obviously I'm the only person who's going to be elected. And Williamson now comes in with this idea of defeating Trump, but she goes a little bit of a different angle with it. So she talks about what she knows is not going to defeat him, but then she also says about the larger mission that we have. And when she's now talking about a mission Well, that's her invitation to start to talk about things that are not quite political and move her more into the realm and what she's familiar with as a self-help author. And she's going to be starting to talk about things like the conventional political establishment being too narrow of a container for the energies that must emerge at the time. Now, again, what does that mean? What do we? What does that mean, the energies that must emerge at this time, and that those energies are not just American, but they're a global impulse? What are we talking about? It's all very unspecified, very global, very abstract. And are we saying anything specific here? Well, no, because as we know with politicians and self-help authors, that the less specific they need to be, um, the more in which their message actually can appeal to the most amount of people. And so she says this this also interesting thing here where she says, you know, Trump didn't create this system, so I'm not prosecuting a case only against Trump. You hear that prosecution language coming out there. Rather, I'm prosecuting a case about the system that he represents. And when she can talk against a system, well... You know, this is San Francisco. Everyone hates the system, right? There is not a person in that room, or probably not a person in the city, who would agree that they like the system of how it is. And if there's something that both um, conservatives and liberals, but probably mostly liberals, can agree with, it's that the system is not working. They disagree about the specifics of what that means, But the system as a whole, you know, might not uh, might not work. So, again, starting off here, we hear Williamson really beginning with the abstraction, the big picture and really how she's going to start to frame these ideas throughout
0: the rest of her talk. So in this next clip here, you're going to hear even more of that imagery um, even more of that, but you'll start getting to a little bit more of how she sets up straw man arguments. Um, this is anotheristic that a lot of politicians use. Something that Marianne Williamson also likes to use a lot because she's one of the more fringe candidates. So it's uh, probably very advantageous of her to inoculate listeners to what their friends might say or what other people might say about her ideas or her thoughts, or or maybe why you know her ideas might not be the best. She's going to inoculate them. Um, against that and reframe everything for her uh, purposes.
2: Some people say say that the problem with me is that I'm naive, you see. The idea that I believe love rather than market forces disconnected from all moral and ethical considerations should actually be the operating principle for human civilization. Some would say, I'm naive to say that. Let me tell you what I say. They're naive to think we will survive on this planet for another hundred years if we do not make that change. And it is time for those of us who believe that to say so unabashedly, without apology, without embarrassment, and within the political sphere. Because it's very convenient to stand on the, uh, on the sidelines. It's very convenient, particularly in a city like this, where we know we're just going to get applause for saying it. <laughs> but I have long felt that those of us who feel strongly about higher consciousness and evolutionary potential in the human race are the last people who should be standing on the sidelines when it comes to weighing in on the economic and social and political issues of our day. We should be the biggest grown-ups in the room. Because because if you have a clue as to what changes one life, you're the one who has a clue what will change this world because change does not happen just because you make some incremental changes. The idea you're gonna tweak a policy here, you're gonna tweak a policy there, you're gonna make this policy change, this incremental change, that's like saying you're only going to treat the symptoms but you're never going to treat the cause of a disease. And if all you do is treat the symptoms, then the symptoms will simply morph into another symptom. Or in political terms, the next president will come and repeal everything that you just did or the next uh, legislature will come and repeal everything that you just did. The problems are deeper and the solutions must be made deeper as well. We have on our hands now not just one policy that's nutty or another policy that's nutty. We have a bigger problem on our hands than that. We have the fact that a sociopathic economic system has corrupted the United States government, has hijacked America's value system, and what lies in front of us are two choices, enlightenment or fascism. You look down the road, it's going to get either really light or really dark, and we better start articulating something really light, even within politics. (laughs) the president this president will not be beaten with a purely political argument i don't think he'll be beaten with a purely economic argument and unfortunately he will not be beaten even by just a purely rational argument i've been saying to democratic politicians for years you guys don't seem to understand the part of the human brain that rationally analyzes an issue is not always the same part of the brain that decides who to vote for I'll tell you how the president will be defeated. He will be defeated on the basis of a moral argument. And right now, the only argument being waged against him on the level of morality is almost high school. What you're doing is really immoral. That's where we're coming. What the president is doing is really immoral. It's got to be bigger than that. We have to present a moral alternative. We have to present a moral politics. And even though too many of the Republican politics are immoral, too many Democratic politics are amoral. We need more than amoral, we need a moral politics.
1: All right, so we hear her. Talking very quickly here and linking ideas together, one after the other, one after the other, having this play on words, immoral, amoral, amoral, and being able to say it so quickly and so fast. Well, we know that when someone talks quicker, they tend to be viewed as more persuasive. And the reason is, is because people don't have a moment to stop and consider what that person actually just said. So she starts off with this idea of some people say that I'm naive because I believe in love. And this is just <laughs> such a Disney movie type of argument. And then she goes into this thing right after that, instead of the complex market forces and, you know, the operating principles of human civilization. So it's like she's using words from different domains And linking them all together. So, operating principles, you know, I would expect that to be kind of a business term and, you know, market forces. But when she talks about operating principles of human civilization, see, now she's taking a business term and applying it to human civilization. So, what you're going to hear with her is she's becoming very metaphorical. And, well, she talked there about the brain and the parts of the brain that vote for someone here within. Um, politics. And so she probably knows that the part of the brain that processes metaphor is the subdominant hemisphere. And that's the part of the brain also that is activating and acting on these really quick impulses and making these rapid decisions based on something that a person says quickly versus really slowing it down. And, you know, it's just amazing how she just keeps you know, linking these ideas together. And she uses these big words, but notice how as she's using the big words, a lot of them are synonyms for another one. So it's unabashedly, without apology. We are not going to sit on the sidelines because it's convenient. Instead, we should be the ones, you know,
0: who actually do that. And she keeps tying it back into that idea. Yeah, I really like how you brought up the point about how she brings out different phrases from different domains and from different, you know, knowledge spheres. You know, she sort of combines all of these things. And this is something that you hear from a lot of motivational speakers or maybe like televangelists or people who, you know, seem to have a cult following behind them, a lot of religious leaders too. They take stuff from multiple domains, ideas that a listener might have a vague knowledge of. Or, you know, maybe they are an expert in one field, but not an expert in all of the fields, so that the listener is able to latch at one thing that they've heard before. And you all know about the, you know, the principle of, you know, knowing a little bit about something is more dangerous than knowing nothing or knowing everything about a topic. Well, the same thing sort of applies here, where somebody might have heard or maybe read briefly about a different domain and heard these phrases like, you know, evolution or higher consciousness or operating principles, market forces, they might've heard, you know, phrases and things like that before. And so then they think they know a little bit about that, but not enough to actually call her out and be like, well, what are you talking about? Tell me more details because they don't know the details themselves, but this person here is talking about that. So they must know all of the details. And so she's able to link all of these things together and seem like an expert in all of these different domains, all of these, you know, scientific and economic and, and grand ideas and spiritual ideas that, that she must be an expert on it and know all of the intricacies and how they all relate to each other. And she can she can provide us with sort of that missing link, that key that brings all of these things into one unified theory. And so it's, it's sort of something that's very common um, in a lot of religious and a lot of motivational. Stuff speaking, a lot of things like that, that people who gather that cult following, not unlike some of Marianne Williamson's followers, but uh, a lot of people who um, who preach and stuff like that, they combine stuff in the same way that Marianne Williamson does. And, you know, I just find that really interesting. Yeah,
1: it's amazing how she brings in, and you're absolutely right, Alex, on this, on this idea that Wow, she's just bringing in so much of those little aspects, the little domain, that Dunning-Kruger effect of saying, hey, if I know this little bit of something, then I must know the general principle. I must know more about it than they actually do. And so we hear her saying this in her speech. She says, you know, if you have a clue, then you're the one who knows what to do about it. If you have a little bit of a clue, if you're the person who has the higher consciousness and evolutionary potential, those of us who believe in higher consciousness and evolutionary potential, we should be the grownups in the room. Why? Why does believing in something mean that you necessarily are an expert on something else? Like, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And so but we don't have enough time to really process that idea that these people going to a rally in San Francisco, maybe shouldn't be on the cabinet or the advisor of a, of a president, you know, but we don't have time to process that because then she starts talking about disease. Yeah. Disease like physical disease. And she likens it to a disease where the symptoms that are within the disease that the political simpt- the political system is like the symptom, but we don't just treat the symptom. We need to treat the entire disease because if you te- keep treating the symptom, then the symptoms get worse and the disease is the larger political system. And then she goes into linking that to problems and solutions. Notice how she uses this thing of one extreme and then the other extreme. So symptoms and disease. And now she's talking about problems and solutions. So they are opposites of each other. And when a person goes, this is, this in hypnosis is called apposition of opposites. And when a person goes back and forth between the two opposites, it creates this very hypnotic effect. It's like you're hearing in a stereo speaker, but then you hear one channel and then the other channel. And it creates this very hypnotic effect where they're, being pushed to both extremes and they don't really know where to find themselves in the middle of that whole thing and you know she kind of ends it on this whole thread about you know darkness (laughs) lightness and darkness we've got the two choices right we can either be in the light or we can be in the darkness which is kind of Biden-esque, isn't it? I feel like this is Joe Biden's thing. You know, we've covered this so much here within the, within the podcast that Biden did that speech of, you know, we're walking down that very dark road. And, you know, we better start articulating something, you know, more, more
0: lightheaded, you know, more getting into the light. So in this next clip here, um, she's going to be doing something that Donald Trump is really an expert at, where she sort of insults her audience with a smile. Um, and uh, then leads into uh, new thoughts to sort of teach them about something. And what she's going to teach them about is American history.
2: And what they do is they do more in terms of public policy. And this is not only domestically, but also internationally, I'm afraid. More of our policy is driven by advocacy for short-term profits – for huge multinational corporate entities, then it is driven by advocacy for the health and well-being of the American people, the people of the world, and the planet on which we live. If you think this political system is going to interrupt that or fix that, I I suggest that you think a little more deeply. The conventional political establishment is not the fix to all this, ladies and gentlemen. The conventional political establishment is the problem. It is time for the people to step in now. And if you look, I think this is a very, very good time to read up on American history. Go to say, you know, if you don't remember what you learned in the seventh grade or you you didn't really learn it because you were thinking about something else, this is a good time to go buy one of those like American history for dummy books or something like that. Because it's really a fascinating story and it's an important story. And when it comes to the history of the United States, just like with the history of your family when you go to therapy or the history of your, your tribe or your ethnic group, you're empowered by an understanding of your history. And we're empowered by an understanding of American history as well. So let's be very, very clear. In 1776, the most enlightened principles that were ever coded into the foundation of a country were coded into our Declaration of Independence. The gnarly part is that the men who risked their lives to establish those principles of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all people, the equality of all people, governments are instituted to secure those rights, and it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish that government if it's not doing its job. Those principles were laid down by men, 41 of 50 some out of whom were themselves slave owners. So this dichotomy has been with us from the very beginning. We have been throughout our history, not only a nation, built on the most aspirational and enlightened principles ever uh, coded into the founding of a country, but we have also been throughout our history. Throughout our history, we have at times represented the most violent transgression against those principles. All I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, this is not the first time. We are not the first generation to have to push back against forces that are essentially undemocratic they did it before slavery was responded to by abolitionists and the suppression of women has been responded to by two major waves of feminism and the women's suffragette movement institutionalized white supremacy and segregation was responded to by the civil rights movement we' are not the first time to have to deal with this let's just not be the first generation of Americans to wimp out on doing what it takes to you <laughs> write a book it's very interesting <laughs> but also let's be very clear abolition did not happen because the conventional status quo of their time politically rose up and went let us in slavery that's not what happened the abolitionist movement arose from the early evangelicals and the quakers in other words the people stepped in That's what caused the political change to begin. Same with the suppression of women and the women not having the right to vote. The American government didn't wake up one day and say, oh, let us give women the right to vote. (laughs) With the women's suffragette movement, the people stepped in. And same with segregation. The American government didn't wake up one day and say, oh, let's end segregation. With Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement, the people stepped in. Ladies and gentlemen, as I said, if you think the traditional political establishment with the billions and billions of dollars invested in a donor class that keeps the situation basically as it is, if you think they're going to rise up and they're going to change this, like I said, not going to happen. It is time in American history, once again, as it has been before, for the people to step in. And of course, they call that a long shot. They want that (laughs) thought lodged in your brain. Of course. And, uh, and I, I certainly challenge the idea that only somebody whose career has been entrenched for decades in the system that drove us into this ditch is the only person we should consider qualified to lead us out of this ditch. We have been trained, see? We have trained to expect too little. We've been ta- trained to question too little. We've been trained to complain too little. And that will be the death of America.
0: Yeah. Great. And so what she does here is she starts by making the audience feel like they don't know anything about U.S. history. So she makes this joke about, well, if you don't know about American history, then maybe you should go out and buy an American history for dummies book or something. And everybody sort of laughs at it because she's saying it in sort of a folksy way. But what she's doing right there is she is saying that, oh, if you're not an expert, if you don't know as much about American history as I know, then you should really listen to what I'm about to say. And then she goes into this thing where she talks about the history of America and sort of rewrites it, or she's able to frame things the way that she wants to frame it, and then lead everybody along the way, because she points out little things that people know about American history, and then she reframes it. And then she introduces new things that, uh, you know, might be framed a little bit differently or, or things that people don't really know a whole lot about, and then framing them in her way. Leading them along the path to her ultimate conclusion that in every moment in American history where something has gone, the people stepped in. And she uses that voice right there. The people stepped in. Um, and that's sort of like, that, that's sort of a way, and she does it re- repeating it over and over and over again, almost like she's anchoring people to this, uh, to this feeling, to this thought pattern that when something bad happens, the people stepped in and now it's time for us to step in. Um, and so it's just, it's, I don't know. It's kind of, it, it, it's, it's, it's an interesting way of both framing, pacing and leading And then sort of a a call to action right there um, for the people listening to her. Marianne Williamson is interesting because she doesn't have the
1: typical political polished way of talking. She's polished in one way, which is that she's teacher, author, speaker. She's been doing that for so long but she has this kind of down-home quality to how she's talking. Like, I'm going to tell you the real facts. I'm going to tell you the down-home facts. And, you know, Marianne Williamson is from Houston, Texas, and you can kind of hear that in her accent and in her analogies and the way that she talks about things, where she she brings it oftentimes back to that very common sense kind of Um, next-door-neighbor type of conversation that a person might be saying. So, yes, as Alex said, she starts by basically insulting the audience, you know. Uh, When you talk about your family, you know, when you go to therapy, or when we talk about, you know, this this type of thing, (laughs) you talk about this. But we don't talk about the U.S. We don't talk about what's really important there. Um, You don't know history, and this is going to be – something that she repeats again and again and again which is that she'll say a point and then she'll go back to something in history which you probably already know it or you know about it or you know something you know similar to it but she's going to say it and then it's going to either do two things either one it's going to be a pace which means you're going to go yep that's true and then it's going to build upon her argument because you just said something that was true or two because she said that in such that in such an authoritative way you're going to go wow she knows more about history than i do i better pay attention so that's a big part of her draw here is how she's using you know this idea of history and she's going to keep going back to these ideas of the mistakes that we've made in the past you know slavery being the number one issue that she's talking about quite a bit. But notice what she does here with time, which is that she talks about the issue of slavery, of it being a negative thing. And she says, we're not the first generation that had to push back against these forces that were undemocratic. We're not the first generation that had to do that. And yet what she wants to push back against are things that happened a long time ago. So the ideas, her a lot of her premise of her campaign and what she builds things up of is like, this is how history has happened. And yet, why should we push back against that? Well, because history, because this is what has been historically you know, based. But notice how she kind of spans time. It's like she's saying now, as if we're talking about at this present moment, and yet somehow we have to also put ourselves back in these times back in the past as if it's happening now and this is a a really core thing that i think i think if you listen to her you're gonna hear what she's saying a little bit differently um i'm not sure if she herself even realizes that she's doing that but frankly this is something that is very prevalent in the self-help spiritual community which is this whole idea of well we don't need to worry about when something happened because hey It's all energy anyway, right? It's all consciousness anyway, and this is just the consciousness of the planet. And, you know, it's kind of like, hey, can we really step down and chunk that down and get a little bit more into sensory experience and a little bit more into, you know, what's actually happening so we can critically decide what it is that we're actually going to do?
0: Yeah. And the other thing that you hear a lot from Marianne Williamson is she does these voices, um, where she already she's done several different voices uh, before. So previously she did this uh, when she's doing the straw man argument of uh, why other people might say that she's naive or or unrealistic. Um, you know she she does the 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 sort of uh, typical liberal voice where she's like, but that but that just won't happen. Um, but now she she's doing this other voice where she's acting out sort of like the people versus the dynamic where, you know, she's acting out sort of straw man versions of very complex and nuanced situations in American history. Um, (laughs) And it's really interesting because what it does is Donald Trump does this, too, where he'll just like um, slip into a, you know, a role play where he's just like acting out situations that never happened. Um, And what it does is it gets the listener to... Uh, envision to picture or maybe hear in their head these voices, um, just like a a child being told a story where, you know, maybe the parent is reading a book and is doing the voices. Uh, It's the same, same sort of thing right there where you can slip into, you know, an imaginative state where you're picturing this situation happening and maybe it's an absurd situation. You're like, oh, that's really silly. Therefore, this entire idea that she's talking about is silly. Um, That in this case, when uh, you know the government was just like, um, yeah, okay, or can we please have this from the American people? And the government's like, yeah, sure. Like that's very absurd. Um, And she by acting it out, she's making the whole concept of this uh, this conflict in American history seem, you know, really absurd. And. Therefore, she contrasts it with her version of what actually happened in American history as being more realistic and more concrete. So, you know, by slipping into these little pretend voices and these, you know, straw men who, you know, have the silly voices, um, she's able to make the, the people that she's trying to uh, characterize and misrepresent seem even more absurd than maybe they actually were. Uh, and it's a really effective tactic. Now, in this next clip here,
1: Marianne Williamson's going to be bringing us back to this issue on race, but she's going to be inserting one little thing here, which is a sensory change and it's something that I actually teach people to do in hypnosis classes. And so I really recognize uh, what she's doing here. So let's take a listen to this second next part. The
2: second place where we need to get real and we need to get deep and we need to get transformative and we need to do some radical truth telling, just like with children, just like with everything else I'm talking about, is on the issue of race. I do not believe the average American is a racist. That's not my belief and it's not my experience. But I do believe that the average American is vastly undereducated about the history of race. And it is my experience in some of the whitest states in this country That when you just kind of lay it out for people, we're a good people, we're a decent people. I'm not saying Americans are better than anyone else, because we're not, but we are as good and as decent. The problem is not that the American people, American people are not the problem. The American political system is the problem in that it is not aligned with the consciousness of the American people. In issue after issue after issue, if you look at the polls, where the American people stand is okay, It's the fact that our government has been hijacked by other forces. And because of that, we are not politically taking on some of the issues that matter the most because they don't fit into the conventional political uh, formulation of what what power is about in America. In 1619, the first enslaved people were brought to this country. The uh, slavery was not abolished for 249 years almost 250 years of slavery in this country, at the end of which there were between four and five million enslaved persons. Those people were promised by Tecumseh Sherman, General Sherman, 40 acres and a mule. Now I know we've all heard that, but I'd like you to join with me once again, integrative, expand it, listen with your heart, think about what this means. You were a slave, now you're not a slave. What are you supposed to do? Where are you supposed to go? How are you going to feed yourself? How are you going to feed your family? I mean, it's nice that you're not a slave anymore, but what are you? And as Martin Luther King would say 100 years later, they were freed. But what were they freed to?
1: So what we hear through this clip is that Marianne Williamson starts off with describing us again the history of the U.S. And people can go, okay, 40 acres and a mule. Okay, this is what was promised. And then, you know, this was the law that was passed. And then she goes into this idea of the system and you know what it what it's all about and what I want to draw you attention to is this phrase here she says she says I want you to open your heart to this which is a code word for I want for you to stop thinking logically and I want you to go into emotions I'm not saying that's always bad I'm just saying that's a code word for it right that's what you're inviting people to do is to go in and shut down their critical thinking about something and then to go into it and 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 receive it emotionally and she says you were a slave now you are not a slave what are you supposed to do where are you supposed to go and hopefully you can notice by my emphasis on the words what is she saying here she's saying to them you 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 it's like you were the slave okay now Marian Williamson made headlines by having an event where she invited white people to apologize to black people for slavery. But of course, the black people that they were apologizing to were not slaves themselves, right? And I understand it was a spiritual experience, but still, they were not the slaves themselves. And yet... When they were being apologized to, what was happening there was basically a hypnotic phenomena, which is an association into another person. Now, hypnosis is a process by which the associative and the disassociative properties of the mind are enhanced. And so what we have going on here is that she's inviting them to step into the position of another person, to see the world through their eyes, to hear through their ears, to experience what that was like. And so she's using that word you in a very pointed way. You were a slave. Now you are not a slave. And I want you to just get here how this is part and parcel of her being able to shift time. And what we were talking about earlier, which is that as she's using time and going through time saying, oh, well, it's the same then as it is now. Well, she's doing that now by having them associate into what it was like then, which is totally transinducing inducing and um, basically very evocative of certain certain things, and she's certainly not having them um, think logically about it. So all the logic at that point has gone out the window.
0: Yeah, Marianne Williamson, I tell you, there's nothing more entertaining than watching Marianne Williamson talk about race um in some of the some of the proposals that we <laughs> air on this episode was uh some of her rallies or um seminars where she actually has all of the white people in the room turn to an African American and put their hands on their back and apologize and goes into a very hypnotic meditative apology person um And it's really, it's, it is remarkable. Um, And she's doing it. um, She does it very frequently where she sort of, I think, you know, any person of color would be sort of appalled by this, but what she does do really effectively is speak to, um, you know, sort of like the, the white guilt. And for people who might be on the liberal side of, you know, the, the race issue and being white themselves might really um, feel some uh, empathy and some real, um, uh, some sort of e- e- emotional, meditative sympathy here. Um, and this is something that she goes to very frequently um, in trying to get people who, you know, might not have a very, concrete concept of race to um, to embody that and to really feel it and to really empathize. So um, I think that it might not appeal to all people, but it certainly appeals to a, a very certain demographic um, that she speaks to very clearly and very effectively here in situations like this. And so it's really interesting to see this here. And and again, she's constantly interweaving, you know, metaphors and, uh, and pacing people and building on assumptions and building on ideas and going back to American history and reframing American history in her terms. Um, and, and all of this within the larger frame that she, that she made earlier, that if you don't know all of the stuff that I'm talking about right now, the way that I'm talking about it, then you don't know American history and you need to listen up because I'm going to tell you about it. Um, so this is all in a very educational setting where she is the teacher, you are the student. And, uh, if you don't agree or know already all the things that she's saying well you're about to learn um, and she does it very effectively all right so
1: in this next part here we're going to be talking about national security and we're going to find out Maybe she has to actually get down to some basic policy points here. So is she actually going to tell us exactly what she would do with national security? Or is she going to get back into more of her history and framing? Well, you might guess the answer, but let's take a listen to this next clip to see exactly how she does this.
2: And in a way, I've saved the worst news of all for last. I hate to tell you. That has to do with national security. And if you should be appalled by anything, you should be appalled by the fact that of all the people running for the Democratic nomination, only two of us even touch it. And that should tell you everything you need to know. Okay, so our national security agenda, just like so much of our public policy, is driven more by short-term profits for huge multinational corporate entities than it is driven by advocacy for people and planet. So what, I, I have great respect for the military. My father fought in World War II. I don't think any of us don't think we need to have a strong military. Our military, though, should be like a surgeon. If you have to have surgery, you need to have the best. But you avoid surgery if at all possible. Now, for those of you too young to remember, let me give you just a little bit of an American history here. There was a man named Dwight Eisenhower. He was the supreme allied commander in World War II. He certainly understood the military and what its needs are. He then came back to the United States and served as a Republican president from 1952 to 1960. When he gave his farewell address, it was he who coined the phrase military-industrial complex. Because before World War II, the United States didn't have a standing army. I don't think any of us fail to recognize we need a standing army. But Eisenhower warned us about the military-industrial complex because once that started to happen, there was a lot of money to be made. I want the U.S. military to have every sense that it needs uh, in order to address our legitimate security concerns. The issue is not about military policy. The issue is about political policy by which short-term profits for defense contractors are served that have absolutely very little to do with our national security. Given that with national security, just like with health of the body, you can't just take medicine. You have to cultivate your health. And with war and peace, the same is true. Sickness is the absence of health. Health isn't the absence of sickness. And war is the absence of peace. Peace isn't the absence of war. We can't just spend all of our resources on endless Even Donald Rumsfeld said, we must wage peace. But if we wage peace, let's talk about the real facts of the matter here. Our military budget is $750 billion a year. Our State Department budget is $40 billion. State Department is mediation, diplomacy, and um, development. Within the State Department, there are two main peace-building factors. One, the USAID, which is humanitarian aid, $17 billion. And peace-building agencies, the peace-building agencies get, in total, less than $1 billion. Peace-building efforts, peace-building activities take just as much sophistication as do military activities. And let me tell you the four factors, none of these will surprise anyone, which statistically mean, when present, there will be greater incidence of peace and a diminished incidence of violence. Number one greater economic opportunities for women. Number two, reduced violence against women. Number three, expanded educational opportunities for children. And number four, amelioration of unnecessary human suffering wherever possible. That is why for me, if you make me president, All domestic and international policy will be built around the core that in order for us to have peace and prosperity in this country, on this planet, we will pass policies which have as their bottom line the tendency to help people thrive.
0: Right? So the thing about Marianne Williamson is that you can tell what she wants you to pay attention to by the pace of her speech. So like we talked about before... She has this, uh, this pacing where she speaks very quickly um, about all the background and all the framing that she wants to lay. And then here in this clip in particular, you can hear the point at which she switches from this really fast-paced sort of history and fact, 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 fact. Here's some figures. Here's some money. Here's some dollar amounts. And then she stops and she slows down. and She says, number one, this. Number two, that. Number three, that. And she just stops and she's just doing this very slow one, two, three, this count. Um, and that's when you can tell exactly that's what she wants you to pay attention to. Like she wants you to l- hear all of these, you know, facts and figures and and all of the foundation about what she's going to say. And she wants all of that to just go over unquestioning in your mind. And then what she wants you to do is then stop. And because of all of that, focus on these facts that she, that she's about to say. And she says, nice and slow and gives you time because these are no longer premises. These are values. These are things that you can probably agree with. And these are things that are going to make you like her. So she um, builds up all the reasons for that, makes herself seem like a really credible speaker, and then says all of the things that are going to make you like her nice and slowly to let them sink in. And she throws the audience
1: off base from time to time. So she says, our military is like a surgery. Like, wait, what? (laughs) How is it like a surgery? But she's going to tell us, because if you have to have surgery, you need to have the best, but you should avoid surgery if all possible. So, you know, I don't know what she's saying here. That's that much different from, you know, typical, you know, military policy, Um What is she saying here? We should avoid, you know, war. But then she goes on to talk to us about how the issue is not with military policy. It's the political policy that's the problem. Okay. How do you separate the two? I'm not sure, but she goes on. There was a man named Dwight Eisenhower. He was the supreme allied commander of World War II. And then he came back and he was a Republican president. You know, never mind that in Eisenhower's time, the Republicans meant something completely different than what it means actually today, but, you know, okay. It was he who coined the phrase military industrial complex. And Eisenhower warned us that. And what she's doing is she's taking us back a pretty long time back to what Dwight Eisenhower said and what he warned us about. And then she's implying that what he said must be also true for us here today. And again, playing loose with time, okay, back then must be the same as it is today. And we hear going into the metaphors back to the sickness of the body. And she said this one so fast, so fast. With national security, just with the health of the body, you have to cultivate your health. And with war and peace, the same is true. Okay, so what she's doing here, she's implying that war and peace is sickness and health. So that means if we're at war, then we must be sick. But if we wage peace, then that means this. Even Donald Rumsfeld said that we must wage peace, you know, implying that everyone understands that this must be true. Even the worst of us understands that this must be true. And then at the end there, she really gets into those four factors. Well, the two main peace-building factors, the four aspects. And this is ordinals using numbers to make it sound more official, just like we talked about how the Republicans did with the Mueller report, right? So many Secret Service agents working this many hours a day to come to the conclusion that And then as she goes through these factors, notice how all of them conveniently support her message. These are the ones that decrease violence and increase peace. And what are they about? Well, the first three are about women and children. So greater economic opportunities for women, reduce violence against women. And then people applaud. Why do they applaud? They applaud because she talked about women. They're not applauding about anything else. I mean, let's be real here. They're applauding because she's talking about the empowerment of women. And what she's suggesting is this idea of when women succeed, then everyone succeeds, which, again, that's probably true on many levels because, you know, women are about 50 percent of, you know, most populations and. Yes, when women succeed, typically the whole tide is going to rise, you know that's absolutely true. Is it true though that that's the only way and success only way success can happen? Not necessarily, right? But these are big liberal talking points. And the point is she says these things and she is it is easy, she even said it earlier, it's easy for her to get applause, you know, through this and then once she's got the crowd worked up, once they're in that place of applause, Once they are really energized with this message of, yes, peace, and yes, women, and yes, children, and yes, history, and we're going to learn from history. Then she goes into, that's why, if you make me president, all possibilities will have as their bottom line. I mean, think about what she's saying here. All possibilities will have as their bottom line the tendency to help people thrive, (laughs) what does that mean? (laughs) Helping people thrive. Okay. I thought we were already trying to do that. What is she saying? That's different. Well, it's just very vague and basically saying, Hey, we're going to make America great again. Like, you know, she's just saying it in different words. We're going to, you know, create positive things that are happening. It's just big, abstract, vague language that actually doesn't link to anything specific and this is what she's repeatedly going into here you know, again and again.
0: So in this next clip, you're going to hear her talk about Martin Luther King uh, and another metaphor again about darkness and the light.
2: And leadership, you see, leadership, political leadership, should not just be deciding what we're going to talk about. They tell you what the issues are. Not only, and not only that, but political leadership should not just be Talking to you about how this or that might please you. This or that might get your vote. Political leadership should be sa- about saying the things that need to be said. Political leadership about sa- or should be about saying the things that matter. And Martin Luther King said, if you, your life begins to end on the day you stop talking about things that matter. Now, darkness isn't a thing. It's the absence of a thing. It's the absence of light. You can't hit darkness with a baseball bat and hope to get rid of the darkness. You have to turn on the light. So much of the collectivized hatred, racism, bigotry, anti-Semitism, homophobia, Islamophobia... Xenophobia, that's now formed this field of collectivized hatred in this country, which has been given a megaphone in a way that it had not been by social media, and that now is being stoked by no, no no less powerful a person than the President of the United States, cannot be defeated directly. You cannot defeat dog whistles. You have to override them. You have to drown them out with a more beautiful song. That more beautiful song, the President is not a politician, ladies and gentlemen. He's more than that. He's a phenomenon and the only way we will defeat him even at the polls in 2020 is by creating among ourselves a phenomenon of equal power. And that phenomenon, that phenomenon is not just a bunch of wonky talk. You know, it's not just a matter we will do this with this policy, or that with that policy, as important as those issues are. We need to create a phenomenon, a political phenomenon that emerges from people waking up, emerges from people who really get at the deepest level what the hell is going on here? What the hell is going on here? And in some cases, taking responsibility for what we know in our own hearts, with our own acquiescence, our own chronic political disengagement. We all have something to look at here. But the point is, it's the 11th hour now. It is not midnight. Far more people in America love than hate. There's no question about that in this country and in this world. But those who hate in this country and in this world have become very political, very strategized and they hate with conviction and conviction is a force multiplier and so we have to love with conviction now we have to stand on what we believe with as much conviction We have to stand with conviction for the fact that we will not allow, we will not allow a virulent form of capitalism. Now, I don't believe, there's a real conversation, I saw a a, a socialist t-shirt or something, there's a lot of conversation about whether or not uh, uh, capitalism can be, can have a conscience. I believe I, I believe it can. I, I believe that that this is about the consciousness of people. So I, I don't believe that this is necessarily means we can't have, have capitalism. I, I don't. I believe capitalism can have a conscience. But capitalism better quickly reclaim its conscience, or I'll tell you something. Not going to be me that's going to going to storm those uh, the Bastille. But those Bastille that Bastille will be stormed by an entire generation of Americans. The good news is how many very powerful capitalist leaders in America today do know that. Uh, uh, Jeremy Grantham. Um, Um, uh, uh, Ray Dalio and others. But the point is we need to stand very clear that what is happening now, a basically sociopathic form of capitalism, a sociopathic economic system which displays no conscience, no morality, no ethics, no concern for who gets sick if this happens or even who dies, that stops now. That (laughs) stops now.
0: So here we've sort of got the, the big climax of Marianne Williamson's speech here. And, uh, you know, the thing that really stuck out to me about all of this right here is just her, her use of metaphor. She just took it and she just dialed it up to a hundred right here. So first she starts off talking about darkness and, and the absence of light. And so these are very, these are very visual metaphors. Then she moves into this idea about the, the bigotry and the phobia and, and this collective field. And it's a field that's, I don't know, I think that's a little bit more tactile or it might be a, bit, a little bit of a more a spiritual metaphor. And that field has been given a megaphone. So now that's an auditory modality that she's engaging right there. And then she talks about how that that field with a megaphone or the darkness that's a field with a megaphone has, <laughs> is being stoked so, now that's maybe back to a more uh, a more tactile sort of heat, um, cold versus heat right there. So, she's saying that now it's getting even hotter and that that can be drowned out with a song, with a, with a more beautiful song. And so, now we're back to the, to the auditory, but now in a very soothing um, auditory modality, she's engaging right there. So, it's really, she's just like she's just throwing everything at the wall to see like what's going to stick with this person. Um, and I think that that's not by mistake right there. She's really trying to see um, it's it's sort of a way that a lot of hypnotists um, practice is they throw out different senses and different, you know, ways a person might feel and engage with the world. And each of us have some that we're more strongly in tune with than others and can respond to more so than others. And so what she's doing here is she's just throwing out all of them in hopes that you might respond to and engage with one of them more than the other and believe and feel more of what she's trying to say and get her point a little bit better um, to that point where, oh, that makes sense to me. Um, and that's what she's doing here.
1: Yeah, she takes all of those different metaphors and she just combines them in, you know, about you can't swing at darkness with a baseball bat. You have to turn on the light and, you know, you can almost imagine that, right? You can imagine that someone is there in the darkness swinging their baseball bat, but now you know, they don't have a baseball bat, they have that megaphone, and, you know, the dog whistles, you know, can't drown that out, only the song. Now, what is the song, though? Because right after that, right after the metaphor, she goes into talking about this phenomenon, and the president isn't just a candidate, he's not just a man, he is a phenomenon, and what is the phenomenon that she wants for you to have? Well, the phenomenon, you can't, you have to challenge a phenomenon with another phenomenon. And what is that phenomenon? It's her campaign. So she goes into that and she talks about how this thing of it, where it comes from people waking up. And when people waking up, it comes from people waking up and people who really get this at the deepest level. What does that mean? People who really get this at the deepest level. And then she doesn't say anything else. She just goes into a voice and a quote as if she's reflecting someone's internal dialogue. What the hell is going on here? What the hell? And as she says that, and remember that hell, it's a little bit of a swear word, right? And what happens when you swear words like that is that it activates a more primal part of the brain And it, as she goes into that voice tone of someone being angry, and what is it that they're getting at the deepest level? They're getting anger, they're getting frustration at the political system. So let's just back up from that for just a second. And what other candidates have we heard talking about this? And I would invite you all to, you know, go back to our episode on the Uh, victory speeches that we did where we talked about motivational systems and we heard that some candidates will use a lot of that very visceral away from meaning pain-based motivation and that's what drives them and then other candidates are like you know hey this is what you're moving toward this is the bright system this is the the new thing that you can you know have going on and what Williamson is doing here is a lot of both and what I would say about it Kind of just, you know, breaking it down on a little bit more of a professional level here is that she, her outward presentation is very toward based. It's very, you're moving towards something positive. And yet, what she's tapping into a lot of the time is deep rooted anger, frustration, and pain. So when she's talking about slavery, when she's talking about, You know, things like bigotry and hatred and baseball bats and what the hell is going on. When she goes into that, that's so much pain that she is bringing up within the person. And then what she does is she she utilizes that now to move into the next idea. So her next idea is, of course, this spiritual aspect of something, which is love and hate and it's not really spiritual, it's actually just a dichotomy, love and hate. And what she wants us to believe here is you have the people who love, and then she goes on very, you know, nicely to say that there are more people who love than hate. But those that hate, they hate in a particular way. And notice the careful assumption. The implication of this is, is that each person is either a loving person or they are a hating person, meaning a hundred percent of them is either loving or it's hating. And we have the hating people, people like the, you know, negative stuff that's going on in politics today that she wants to, you know, shine a light on. And then you have the loving people, which are all the people that are there at her rally, including her. You see how this works? And, It's a typical good versus evil type of message, but it is very polarizing. It is one way or the other. You can either be in the lightness or you can be in the darkness. There are no shades of light here that are happening. There is no gradient. There is no level of what this is. It's either you're here or you are there. And so what this happens is that it's very kind of black and white type of thinking of this. Now, people think about Marianne Williamson as, you know what, she's not black and white. She sees the various shades of things. What I'm talking about here is just how she's presenting this is a very one way or the other type of what type of aspect. And that tends to bring up very visceral feelings within someone. And then what does she do with all of that energy, that crescendo of energy that she's now, you know, brought up to the surface? She talks about capitalism. And if capitalism doesn't regain its consciousness, which, wait a second, what did she just say there? That's personification, capitalism having a consciousness. No, it doesn't. It's a, you know, system, not a consciousness. Um, It doesn't have consciousness. Then... The Bastilles will be stormed, and the capitalists know that. And then it's this, and then she ends it on this just very high note of this stops now. What specifically? We don't know. Or that. We don't know what that means. That stops now. That stops now. What is she talking about? We don't know, but it's very visceral, and it moves people all the way toward a a very strong point.
0: Wow, Marianne Williamson really is one of the most interesting people that we've had on this show so far. So I think we're about out of time for this week. Head on over to our Patreon page. It's on our website in the top right corner. You can donate as little as three bucks just to keep us on the air. Now, if you want to engage with the show at all, head on over to our Twitter and Facebook page. We're at SubliminalPod. Send us your questions. Send us your ideas. We always respond and we always have great uh, feedback from our listeners. So it'd be great to have you a part of that. And we will see you in two weeks.